Windows and toxins and cars, oh my. Yeesh, city life sure is tough. And not everyone's up to the task of living like City Mouse. So what makes City Mouse so good at city living? Well, in this episode, we lay out the urban wildlife syndrome, some of the common patterns, behaviors, and adaptations wildlife have that make the city life the good life. This is the Single Acorn Podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. What do you call the third hand on a watch? The second hand! Time flies like an arrow, fruit flies like a banana. Pick up a fruit fly watch today. Well, hey there, fellow naturalists. I'm Professor Iwigi. I'm a naturalist and educator with Crow's Path, and I'm here today with Glenn Etter, who is the lead flautist for Pied Piper Ethical Animal Removal. That's right. Thanks again for the plug, Professor. Mm-hmm. Of course. You have any questions about our business? It's not clear to everyone what we do, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe you could clarify. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you've probably heard of the Pied Piper myth, right? The Pied Piper who led the... Uh, the mice yeah, out sure. of Ireland, I believe it was. There's many legends about the Pied Piper, so we don't try to pin that down. We've just realized that different animals um, that are sometimes considered pests will respond to um, instruments. So we usually bring uh, 50, 50 to 75 instruments if someone's having trouble at their home, and we, we'll play them one at a time and kind of walk around, and eventually, usually the pest will follow us out into a neighbor's home. And then they usually settle in there, and the process repeats. So, so you find that a species has a preference for an in, uh, instrument or a individual has a preference? It's typically, yeah, it doesn't help so much if you just get one cockroach to follow you to another. That does happen <laughs> sometimes. You get the, you know, more the artist types that'll respond to a more unusual, you know, ukulele. But we, we try to find the instrument that an entire, you know, group will respond to. And then we lead that group into another house where they get to be hosted by a host family for a while. And then we'll come in and usually it's the same instrument. So it saves, it's the second time is much faster. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. It's quite, it's quite fun. And we, you know, our music, musical, um, we record what we do and we put it out on the internet and streaming service. So yeah, listeners can get the soundtrack they want. And where are you leading these animals to? <laughs> well, we, we typically the just lead them to a neighbor's house, yes, because that's a better business model. It's and a great then, business model. Yeah, the neighbors aren't always as happy as we, we were. We were hoping originally that they would be happy to have new friends. Yeah. So you um, just sort of sequentially lead these poor animals down the road? We let the animals decide a little bit. Like if we will go sort of down the road, yes. And then if they sort of start veering towards a house, we'll just kind of go towards that house. Or sometimes it's not a house. Sometimes it's a business. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think what we're discovering here is that there are conflicts between animals and humans and also conflicts between humans and their fellow humans. Um, that is so true. I could not have said that better myself. Professor. Yeah. Uh, which is potentially a good segue into our topic for today. So uh, this whole season, we're focusing on urban wildlife. And in our last episode, we were talking about what makes it so challenging to live in a city. And in this episode, what we're going to talk about is some of the common strategies that animals have for dealing with the stresses of city life. So what makes an urban animal an urban animal? So Glenn, I got a question for you. Bring it on. If you were to design an animal that would be super well suited for urban life. For urban city life. Yeah. What would the recipe be for this urban animal extraordinaire? You know, other than the obvious things like a, a good fashion sense so they don't get mocked and ridiculed by the other the other urban animals. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's the first thing I would say. Yeah. That's one thing that, that's affected me somewhat in the cities. 
give it a fancy fur coat. A fancy fur coat or maybe just a hard, you know, kind of a more studded leather kind of tough, tough, but stylish, functional, but stylish, I would say. It'd be important for some urban animals. I would make them um, be able to eat almost anything. Maybe have a sort of love of process, discarded processed food, be able, a body that would be able to process that or take that in and not die. I think yeah, that would be pork helpful. rinds, bunions. <laughs> Maybe a love of hiding in places like sewers or abandoned underground safe locations. Maybe some ability to get away from upset humans. Hmm. Maybe not too fierce. I don't think you want to make them where they're attacking and killing humans. I feel like that might alert the authorities. So maybe <laughs> maybe being a little bit subtle, you know, coming out under cover of darkness, skulking around versus the sort of overly aggressive, rearing up and, and smiting humans and getting their food that way. I don't think that would be a long-term strategy. Yeah, or the reverse of just being like a total coward and whenever a human is nearby running away. We talked about that with startle distance last week, but yeah. Yeah, I don't think, yeah, no, it's, it's you gotta have a, yeah, that middle zone. The sweet spot, I would call it. Yeah. What we're kind of getting at is, and I think you're spot on for uh, a lot of the design elements for your studded leather. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> studded leather weasel? Trash eating. Yeah. So there are some common patterns that are, it's called urban wildlife syndrome. And it, urban ecology is a relatively new field. And so what we think of for urban wildlife syndrome, these sort of repeated patterns of adaptations that wildlife have for living in cities is, and I, we're talking mostly about wildlife here, but there are also some common adaptations of plants as well. Uh, but the different uh, characteristics of these uh, within the urban wildlife syndrome are still sort of being worked out and adding to. So we're going to go through a simple list. It sounds like a, you know, it almost sounds like an affliction, urban wildlife syndrome. Like certain members would get it and they're attached to city life. You know, the way the bears get habituated in the campgrounds. Yeah. And they have to be put down. Syndromes in pathology or disease ology, whatever you would call that. Uh, it, basically, they're just uh, diagnosis by a, a series of symptoms rather than like an illness itself. And so with these syndromes like pollination syndrome or urban wildlife syndrome or whatever, there are these suites of characteristics that are oh. shared. So they're sort of diagnosis by symptoms. Nice use of the word sweet. Sweet. <laughs> so uh, before we get to what the adaptations are that animals have that live in cities, I thought it would be helpful to talk about uh, who gets to live in a city in the first place, right? So what we're looking at when we go to a city and we're seeing wildlife in those cities or we're seeing wild plants, we're seeing the sort of end result of competition uh, through you know, decades to a couple of centuries. And so what makes those organisms suitable or well-suited in the first place for those cities? And there are a couple of different ways of thinking about it, but it's helpful to just back up one step further and think about the amount of energy that's invested in living in a city. And so there are sort of two different broad scale categories of urban wildlife. There are urban populations of animals, and these are animals that are uh, just visitors. So they're sort of adapted on some level to being near humans, but they don't necessarily thrive in an urban environment. I uh, used to live in Santa Barbara, and I had this little garden of native vegetation that was outside uh, of my, my apartment. And there was, I had transplanted a whole bunch of stuff, and I just so happened to 
have gone to Santa Cruz Island and then I came back from the island and there's a plant that grows out there. It's an endangered species called tarweed. And I had some mud presumably on my boot that had some seeds on it. And I was working in my garden and tarweed germinated and came up. And so there's this cool little endangered species population of like three plants (laughs) that had come up. Is it tar-like in some way? uh, It's it's the sticky it's got a sort of uh, sticky quality to the the leaves and the flower yeah so that's where its name comes from and there are a few different species of tarweeds but anyway so i i had a population on some level very small population (laughs) of tarweed growing in this urban environment but it can't cope with those conditions there and so if you kind of coddle it or it might eke out an existence kind of on the margins of these cities but these aren't animals or plants that are really well adapted they're not not thriving yeah and potentially in the long run they'll be outcompeted by this other group called synurbic so what would some animal examples be for the the visiting the visitors they're not so well adapted yeah a lot of these are going to be like larger carnivores and so, you know, they're really exciting stories of coyotes that will show up in urban spaces. Uh, there are occasionally stories of like a deer or... We had the know, moose, moose, the moose in Burlington a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, every, every so often. That's celebrity status. <laughs> yeah, I, so I've lived in Burlington 12 years now. And I have had three different moose in my backyard, <laughs> which is pretty wild. Good but Lord. it's always a big deal when it moves. You have tarweed also? Maybe the tarweed's attracting it. <laughs> I don't, but I have this fence for my chickens and the moose stepped over it. And I've left the, up the fence. It's just kind of bent, but it's like, you know, a five it's foot a tall fence. And it's just barely bent from the moose kind of stepping and slightly hopping over it, uh, which is pretty amazing. Do you have any theory? I mean, is it possible it was seeking out something in your yard? No, I there. I live at the end of this dead end road, and uh, in my backyard, there's a much larger chain link fence that sort of borders off. There's a strip of woods that goes down uh, from my backyard, and then it dead ends at this fence. And so, more likely, what's going on is the moose find this little forested area. It's a corridor, and it goes down the corridor, hits this fence, and then tries to find a way out. So I think that's probably more likely, which essentially is what happens with a lot of these animals where most often cities are built along rivers and rivers are often corridors for wildlife. And so you'll have these visitors to cities that will... Yeah, they're traveling along the river. Um, oftentimes the river, like in, you know, a lot of the rivers in Chicago are pretty heavily built up along the edges, but there are a lot of forested areas, even within the city limits along these rivers. And yeah, so they act as these little shelter belts or corridors for these animals and they make their way and they kind of stay for a short period of time hunting and foraging and then move on. But yeah, so you can get visitors from like coyotes and foxes, sometimes weasels. I have... I was reading this book called Fisher, which is about the large predatory weasel, the fisher. And I was reading about habitat for him and it was saying that, you know, you'll only find fishers in unbroken stretches of conifers where, you know, they can hunt red squirrels. And then I was out tracking that winter and I was tracking right next to the interstate and there was this fisher. This was probably in like February or March. And there was this fisher that was uh, scent marking all along, like right next to the interstate. (laughs) It was pretty cool. No conifers, right? Fishers won't eat. They won't eat other squirrels, because there's a lot of squirrels in cities. You would think maybe a fisher could come in and feed. They don't eat exclusively red squirrels, but they do. I mean, that's a pretty significant source of food for them. Are there 
instances of fishers taking up residence, terrorizing a squirrel population in a city. <laughs> that my, I, I asked my son really wants to see a fisher. It's not that easy. So it turns yeah. out to just Well, I just had a, a game camera up in in both Centennial Woods and Rock Point for most of our listeners, this probably won't matter at all. But uh, yeah, this is within city limits in Burlington and I've gotten fishers at both sites. Um, Uh So they are, you know, Burlington, Vermont is pretty small as far as as cities go. But these are, you know, these urban populations where it's not a species that has adaptations that allow it to thrive and maintain a breeding population within city limits. But you'll get an individual or two that will show up every so often, stick around for a while and then leave. This was a big deal. And my wife used to live down in Washington, D.C. And I was down visiting. And there's the like newspaper museum down just off the mall and it was a really big deal because there was a snowy owl that was hanging out down there and it was there for a while um and then it wound up i don't know if it died but it wound up flying out over the street and a bus hit it oh uh, which was you know what we talked about uh last week with one of the hazards of city life is yeah cars moving vehicles is there any chance that got written up in a newspaper and then that newspaper became part of the museum so that was essentially reporting on its own animal that got killed I would say there's a greater than zero chance that that (laughs) Okay, that's all I'm asking for. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I didn't go to the exhibit. Well, it sounds like both Washington, D.C. and Burlington, Vermont might be interested in showing. Playing clips from this podcast is sort of a way to attract even more tourists. Yeah. Yeah. Feel free um, to be Patreons if there's government officials listening. So. <laughs> Great. Yeah, please do. Yeah, there's a little plug. Uh, yeah, we have a, a Patreon, <laughs> patreon.com slash Crow's Path. You can support this podcast and all the cool work that we do at Crow's Path. Um, so please do that. You can also, another plug here, while we're going after the shameless self-promotion, super helpful to leave us a review. So yeah, smash that five-star button or whatever, subscribe, helps us out. Why do you think they call it a plug? I mean, is it like we're plugging into sort of like an electrical outlet of publicity and it's sort of lighting up? Just curious about the word plug. It must have something to do with like the old switchboards where if you're giving, if you're like plugging it in, you're connecting something to an audience. Someone else. Okay. Possibly. I think it's more likely to be connected that into the fecal plug. Yeah. So what's going to happen is someone's going to go to leave us a five-star review and then they're going to be like, wait, why is it a five-star review and not a six-star? And then they're just going to get diverted. <laughs> yeah, maybe overthinking isn't right in that case. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in Greece, when something's delicious, they say pende nostimo. And pende, like pentagon, five-sided. It's a five. means five stars. In Brazil, they say ten for anything. Oh, all right. Toxic, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, back to the task at hand. So uh, I started mentioning earlier. So those are urban populations where they're just these vagrants or visitors, these loosely human adapted species. So they might have some tolerance of humans, but they they don't find like really hit their stride in cities. There are also synurbic populations and sin means together and urbic urban. Uh, these constructed human environments. And these are human associates uh, associates or human exploiters. And an- these are animals and plants that they find their highest population densities. And often the uh, majority of their populations actually live in cities. They're also like synanthropic populations where they're associated with like agricultural or rural environments and those are different from sin urbic populations so what are some of the classic sin sin urban populations 
Well, so like if you think of a city anywhere in the world, what do you think of for animals? Maybe pigeons. Maybe those cute, cute rats. Rats and mice. <laughs> so glad I you said like rats cute. Are cute. <laughs> I don't know if you ever read Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Yeah, definitely. As a kid, but you know, some smart rats out there. Especially, I think the ones that have had experiments done on them to make them super intelligent. Yeah. I think we. I don't think we should be exterminating those. I think they could help us. <laughs> yeah, they could definitely help them. us. If they're five you know, star, ten, yeah, as they would say in Brazil. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that a rat would be a, a great co-pilot if your on star goes, you know, kaput or, you know, Siri can't give you directions. You got a little rat there. They're trained in solving mazes. Maybe there's a whole, yeah, network. They have their own sort of un- underground system of knowledge that we yeah. shouldn't ignore. You know, we need it. We need everyone at this point in our country. Yeah. <laughs> including the super intelligent rats. <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> Yeah. So the uh, so yeah, rats, cockroaches, Norway rats. Uh, yep, cockroaches. Are most of our rats Norway rats? That's the species. Yeah, Norway and brown rats both, but Norway rats are are the more common for sure. Were they? Yeah. Did they originate in Norway? Do you know anything about that? No, I don't know why they're called Norway. It's kind of like Norway spruce. It feels like Norway's just sending out these things that take over everywhere. The Vikings. Yeah. My assumption is that it has something to do with like where they were imported from uh, when they arrived in North America, I, but I'm not sure exactly why. But there are definitely a lot of uh, Norway for common names like, yeah, Norway maple, Norway spruce, Norway rat. I think it's probably similar with like scientific names where a lot of the early naturalists lived in the Carolinas or Virginia. And so there's like Cyrus Carolinensis, which is the... Uh, gray squirrel or Otocoelius virginiana. The Virginia is, opossum, I think. Yeah, Didelphus right? virginiana, or the white-tailed deer and then the opossum. But no, uh, Norway rats, I think, are from, from Asia originally. <laughs> yeah, so these... Are we taking credit for them? I don't know. I'm getting blamed. <laughs> it's hard to know which. It says here in Wikipedia that they're also called Persian rats, so yeah. it gives them a certain sophisticated... Getting back to my urban leather-clad image yeah <laughs> yeah these smart I, if i were doing a makeover for them i'd go for prison probably yeah so those are just a couple of ways of thinking about the animals that live in cities as either being animals that are really really competitive in cities and actually do best in cities or they're just passing through just or they're just kind of passing through yeah struggling the lone occasional lone straggler yeah so then what makes an animal good at being in a city and being able to cope with the city and as we just saw you know animals are maybe either kind of good or extremely good at living in cities. And so we would want to figure out, well, what is it about those animals that makes them good at yeah, being in a city? And there are two different broad categories. There's interspecific trait variability. And all this means is that within a species, so intraspecific, uh, and then trait, all the different characteristics, so ear size, wing size, eye size, uh, sense of smell, immune system, color, all those different traits, uh, the amount of variability. And it turns that out that, that, yeah, that helps them. So having, well, sort of, and, and we'll see why in a second, but if you're a native species and all of a sudden a city appears in your environment, you are going to be competing against all of these species that are going to be imported with humans. So the Norway rats, the house mice, the cockroaches, the pigeons, all those other things that are really, really, really well adapted to city life. So for native species that wind up expanding the range into these urban environments, they tend to have a lot uh, high interspecific trait variability. So 
why that's advantageous is because if you have a huge amount of variation within a population of, say, four house finches of beak size, then that means that if you are in a city or if you're a house finch, so this is this was a study done in Tucson, and they were looking at house finches that live wild in the desert versus house finches that live just in the city. And because there's a lot of variation in beak size to begin with in the house finch population there, it means that birds that have larger, stronger beaks are better at living in cities because they can successfully eat corn um, and sunflowers, primarily sunflowers, out of bird feeders. Right, So if there wasn't a lot of variability within house finch populations to begin with, then all of the birds would likely have beaks that were too small to be able to crack open sunflowers and they wouldn't be able to compete. And they couldn't city. take advantage of the delicious feeder system. Yeah, exactly. So there's a greater chance that there'll be some subset of that population that can thrive in our city life. Yeah, is it sometimes exactly. that they'll fan out in a city and they'll like sort of occupy different niches, you know, like some of them will be small and better at hiding and then others will be big and better able to like sneak into mcdonald's and grab a hamburger or something yeah this is this is again a new field but there is some cool research that has looked at the genetics of populations within cities and um i think it was some kind of falcon maybe merlins a lot of there's some a lab in in poland that does a lot of research there so there's a lot of synurbic research going on in poland and looking at some predatory raptors they were finding that there are populations, distinct populations within the city. And so often what you get in these cities is you have what's called a founder's effect, where you have a small population of animals that fit the profile for who can compete in a city. And then they populate the city. And so the genetics of that population are becomes like the pretty founders. narrow. Yeah. Right. And what they found is that within some cities, you can have uh, populations are pretty discrete from one another. And so they might have different different founders, genetics, different founders. So they would have different genetics and then also slight trait variability. Right. So that would be the phenotype. Phenotype is the way that the genes are expressed. So the appearance of uh, the different genes. Are there ever cases of those two populations in like going to war kind of like? You know, West Side Stories type two gangs. Like yeah, there gang was um, a great documentary about this called um, Watership Down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that documentary. I've read that. Yeah. That actually yeah. was based on a book by this guy Locklear or Lockhart or something like that, who wrote this treatise on, you know, when, in North America, we think of rabbits. When we think of rabbits, we think, you know, cottontails. Um, but that was written about rabbits that were actually hares that are kind of closely related. Yeah. But yeah, they nest underground. So I read that and I was like, rabbits don't dig holes. Um, <laughs> they, but yeah, those they do. do there. And in, they have a Europe. very complicated religion. I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> yeah. They have some visionary. They have a thousand and one enemies, which is a lot. Yeah. I try to keep my enemies under 500. My that's, a, that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's the uh the the it's pied pretty... piper motto <laughs> that's funny you know our business model is hurting that because yeah as long as you can keep your negative reviews neighbors. under 500 yeah just, just you know start a new name with your business and you can get rid of all the negative reviews pro tip yeah. um so i want to give a serious answer uh to your question do those populations ever yet yeah, yeah. Uh, um, come in conflict with each other and then start I, fighting or... no i not necessarily uh they're most of the times when conflict arises within a species, it is along kin 
lines or along sex lines so males battling other males for territory or access to breeding um, or in situations where you might have uh, where juveniles help raise the next generation fledglings you have these small little family groups and there so there can be some conflict around like white-winged chuffs which live in australia they'll actually steal baby birds from other chuff populations so i guess they will have these sort of like dance-off battles and then they'll steal (laughs) the young (laughs) um and so in those situations you have you know groups that are battling each other but for the most part you don't have you know the ability to recognize different population based on the genetics even rats i mean this is just again sort of my layperson's knowledge but it feels like you know you hear rats are very social and maybe i sort of picture them having these different groups which are somewhat like little colonies or little gangs that might be underground fighting with each other i don't know if that's the way they work though yeah i guess i don't I don't really know the answer to that because there are colonial nesters. And so if you have a colony of uh, monk parakeets that are all nesting together, which they're a common urban bird uh, imported up from Argentina as part of the pet trade. and yeah, Monk dispersed. parakeets. What's that? Is that from monkey or from monk, like religious monks? Monk parakeet. Like uh, uh, another name for them is Quaker. Quaker oh, parakeet. Another religion. Wow. Yeah. Maybe religion helps these animals in an urban setting. They're very pious. Or possibly they just, you know, build nests and, uh, yeah, religions. (laughs) Maybe, yeah, they just use the churches more. They're emptier these days. We're kind of rambling a little bit here, but we'll tie it together. But in in Brooklyn, there's... Yeah, so there's a population in uh, Brooklyn in a cemetery called Greenwood Cemetery. And the uh, so there are these colonial nesters and they build these... They're the only parakeets that make nests out of sticks. And it's actually one of the reasons that they're able to thrive in cities because they build these nests and then they use them throughout the year. And there's one research paper I was looking at was uh, had measured the temperature in, I think this was maybe in Chicago. And uh, they were measuring the temperature inside the nest versus outside. And inside the nest could be almost or over eight degrees Fahrenheit warmer inside the nest than outside and the average temperature through the winter was about three degrees fahrenheit warmer in the nest so they're able to live in an area that's significantly colder than in their native range making their shelter you kind of do you picture this researcher kind of going in there with his thermometer trying just getting pecked and like his ears they're (laughs) talking you know some of them have learned to talk and they're shouting insults at him or her yeah the hazards of of field research (laughs) um so in this uh, cemetery in brooklyn the greenwood cemetery they make these really pretty gnarly nests i mean they're huge it can be uh you know the size of like a small car they're usually much much smaller than that but they'll build them on like mausoleums and stuff in cemeteries and so they were gonna uh the caretakers were gonna remove them and then some researchers were looking at you know whether it was beneficial because they'll kind of push out pigeons in areas that are pretty aggressive and squawky and will push out pigeons from an area where they're both living and so then these researchers were looking at well which is actually better in a cemetery is it better to have pigeons or is it better to have uh parakeets and it turns out that maybe it depends on their poop it depends on their poop. So if it you does? look at which one is more destructive, <laughs> uh, pigeons have more destructive poop for... Uh, How do they measure that? 
Well, you would just look at uh, like acidity. how acidic something is and um, the effects on the type of rock that you have for headstones or for the constructed mausoleums or something. There are a bunch of brownstone buildings and structures in the cemetery and the pigeon poop is more destructive to the brownstone. It can also like uh, leach out colors and yeah, stain it and stuff. And it, you know, the parakeets ha are pretty innocuous. It actually enhances in the colors of many Yeah, it enhances buildings. the colors. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's like a brightening agent. Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, I would think they would also be a bit of a tourist attraction, right? These giant colonies of parakeets. Definitely. In New York. I mean, pigeons are awesome too, but wouldn't you? Wouldn't pigeons you are awesome, but they're not bright green. I mean, these are tropical, tropical birds. Wow. And they're, in they're, the um, they were, you know, they're part of the pet trade. They're really aesthetically pleasing. They're really chatty and vocal. So they're maybe good pets, maybe not good pets, but they are also mimics. And so they can mimic human sounds and stuff. But these so, colonies start mimicking human, you know, things they hear around them. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if they're that good. Uh, starlings definitely will. They'll mimic sounds of like jackhammers and car alarms. But I don't know about, yeah, human voices. You can imagine what they would hear in a cemetery. Probably be yeah. like, what the heck is that? Look at that thing. It's green. Is that a pigeon? There might be like, I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine them all just saying that? <laughs> I, I think that's outstanding. It'd be one way, one way perhaps to to adapt to an urban setting is sort of become a celebrity, right? Become yeah. that, that you're bringing in tourists so you're protected. Character. Yeah. You'd be well fed all the time. Yeah. Now, are there, so there are there rival colonies of monk parakeets in Brooklyn? Is there one main colony or are there multiple colonies? That's a good question. Whether in the cemetery, I don't know how many colonies there are. Uh, their population sizes are growing in cities. It was one of the strangest things. So when I lived in Chicago, I went to college there and I didn't really know much about wildlife. And I ran this one race at North Central. Uh, this was a track race in the spring. And it was like the last chance race of the year. I was trying to qualify for nationals in the steeplechase. <laughs> and uh, there was lightning right when we got on the starting I line. I was saying a bird knocked you down. Right yeah, no. Um, and the lightning race started the, at like And you're running through water in the steeplechase, right? Aren't you running through like little pools of water? Yeah, so you so definitely... lightning. That's a bit of a hazard, right? Yeah, definitely. And so the race got canceled, and or not canceled, but postponed. And then everybody oh. wanted to stick around that was going to race because they were all trying to qualify for nationals, myself included. And the race wound up getting postponed until like, I think one or two in the morning. And then Good there were a Lord. couple of races after that. So we didn't get back uh, to Hyde <laughs> Park where right. I was uh, living until like four or five in the morning. And uh, I was just, I had qualified for nationals. I was super excited. Hey, congratulations. Um, and I had a whole bunch of peanut butter cake right after the race. So I was like wired and I was actually up for dawn. And it was the first time I ever heard the dawn chorus. Uh, and for monk parakeets, it is not a beautiful sound. It's just like <laughs> riotous squawking and hundreds of them. Yeah. And it was like the craziest thing. And I had no ex idea that these I went outside my apartment and I the sound was about a block away. And uh, I yeah followed him and I was like, this is one of the most magical things I've ever experienced. It was so wow. cool. They're definitely, yeah, charismatic and amazing. Maybe our Pied Piper business should go for that. Bring them to, you know, people's other cities, maybe. Yeah. Um, Split off the colony. They do that with beehives, right? When it gets too big, they swarm. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the colony gets kind of big. You grab some of the sticks, get your instrument, lead them to a new city. 
Yeah, I don't know how stoked Everybody's people would be to have monk parakeets. They make they make pretty unattractive nests, and they're pretty loud. Anywhere that's like you would probably want to research what places are having the worst experiences with pigeon poop. That's true, and then just introduce parakeets there. Um, so this talk about monk parakeets brings up so the first one way that animals become good at living in cities is by having high interspecific trait variability, and then the second way that animals are good at being in uh, cities is by having pre-adaptations. So not necessarily having variability across the entire population, but by having specific characteristics. They're just ready. They're ready with, to go. They're ready to go. So with urban ecology, ecologists are looking at what are the urban adapt or the pre-adaptations that make certain species better at thriving in cities, being part of these synurbic populations where so cockroaches. Are cockroaches are, I don't know if we have many species of cockroaches in cities or if it's all typically one main species. I think they're uh, all primarily German cockroaches. German, they should call them Norwegian, probably Norway cockroaches. Yeah, That's Norway cockroaches. Um, do they do well in the wild or are they pretty much only an urban species at this point? Because they seem very good at scuttling. I don't know if scuttling, scuttling would seem to be good in the wild as well, but they're very good at scuttling. Yes. So that's the thing with, uh, uh, with a lot of these synurbic species is that, you know, they're okay in their native environment, but in their native environment, they probably have parasites that are limiting their population size. They have other species that feed on them that are have co-evolved with them to feed on them. Specifically, they have maybe limited access to food. So one of the benefits of uh, cities is that there's warmer temperatures, which can be good, can also be a problem if you're uh, a plant, it means the soils are drier. Right. But then there's also increased light level. So you can be foraging for more periods throughout the day. There are also fewer predators. There are a bunch of these different characteristics. So in a city, these species can thrive in a way that they're not capable of thriving in their native range. So there are popula wild populations of German cockroaches in the same way that there are wild populations of pigeons, wild populations of Norway rats, wild populations of dandelion in their native range. They just are not nearly as dominant as they are in cities. And they may have some sort of specific predator and maybe their native homeland that yeah. we could say just there would be no problem to just bring those into our house. Right. And have those control the, yeah. the cockroaches. I hear yeah. that usually works out. So. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, with okay. cane toads, I think are like the best example. <laughs> oh, we've got cane toads in our house just to take care of whatever comes by. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was just reading about this uh, re or conservation program with uh, quolls, which are these funny little, they look like a cross between like a mouse and a deer. I've uh, heard of the tiger quoll. Yeah, they're That's marsupials. Yeah. Oh, yes. They'll eat cane toads and cane toads are, are like seriously toxic to them and so we'll kill them. And so these conservationists have been making sausages out of cane toads that have like, you know, visible chunks of legs and features <laughs> of the cane toad. And then they'll throw them out into the environment where quolls live. They'll eat them. They'll... It's not a deadly concentration, but it's a concentration of cane toad that is, will make them sick. And so they're able to learn, like, oh, this thing's them. not They edible. associate that yeah. leg that was sticking out of that sausage. They're like, I've seen that leg before. I'm not going to eat that thing. Yeah. Stay away. That's good. Quoll education. School for the quolls. Squalls. <laughs> Squall. Yeah, so pre-adaptations, uh, there are 
and this kind of dovetails in with our our next uh, the next thing I want to talk about, which is uh, the urban wildlife syndrome. And so pre-adaptations are characteristics or features that animals have or plants have that make them particularly adept at thriving in urban so, environments. Yeah. So what are some of the classic pre-adaptations for urban for our urban creatures and organisms? A, a lot of them have to do with tolerance. And so if you're living in an urban environment, uh, so if you look at like street trees, what makes a good street tree? Well, it's a tree that can deal with heavy soil compaction, can deal with dry soil. I just mentioned like the urban heat island effect where cities are typically warmer, warmer and also they have a lot of impervious surface. So whenever it rains, water instead of percolating in the soil just rushes over the surface or goes directly into a drain. So you have warmer temperatures and you have uh, less water. And so you have to deal with soil compaction and really dry soils if you're a plant. Also, if you're in northern climate, you have to deal with road salts. Uh, so being able to tolerate disturbance is really helpful. A lot of species that are uh, synurbic plants are plants that grow in riparian areas where there's a high level of like disturbance constantly. Because I was wondering, because it... When it rains in a city, the water on the that's in the you know hitting the roads and the impervious surface is running everywhere. So maybe those little islands of dirt that the trees are in get a lot of water in that one moment, sort of like a flood type experience, and then it dries out. So yeah. So actually, if you look at plants that, so there are two different or there are three different photosynthetic pathways. The most common one is C3, and then there's another one C4, which is for plants that live in dry conditions. They're able to perform photosynthesis on or like the the sugar producing part of photosynthesis on the interior of the cell or uh, the interior of the leaf where they can um i always hate explaining this because it gets <laughs> really technical really more, quick because uh, corn is c4 right Isn't that... yeah corn is c4 bam uh bamboo is c4 i think there are a bunch of grasses plastic that are c4 explosive is c4 i think plastic one explosive is one well of these <laughs> yeah cities um, and so if you look at, so C4 is a way of photosynthesizing with your pores closed on the leaf and pores need to be open in order to take in carbon dioxide. But when pores are open, water can be lost. Lose water. So, can... so if you're able to photosynthesize, run the full photosynthetic process, the Calvin cycle to produce sugar uh, with the pores closed, you can reduce the amount of water you lose. So if you look at the percent of all plants that are C4, uh, it's only about like 0.4, of all plants that have this C4 pathway that allows them to deal with dry conditions. But in a city, I bet it's higher. It's a lot that's higher. My prediction. Yeah, that's What's your prediction. What's our C4 percentage in cities? I'm going to say, I'm going to go for 25%. I 25%. Uh, well, as far as we know, there aren't trees that are C4. Oh, darn it. So, uh, and a lot of species in cities are, are trees. So do you want to take another guess? 4%. Uh, it's a little bit higher than that. All right. I feel like the next logical step would be a C5. This is just going from cell phone type thing. Yeah. <laughs> the 4G, you don't want to stop there. You want to go over C5, C6 uh, to 11, I would say would be a good number. Cam is the next one. I don't one. know if nature or evolution is working on that, but. I, I yeah. It's possible. Yeah, Nature 2.0. So yeah, it's a, I'll just give you a number because I don't think we did. Uh, but 7.3% of yeah. of all like weed urban species plants. basically in urban species. Is that excluding trees or that's including trees? So That's a good I think it's of all uh, either feral or wild populations of plants in cities. 
right? So it's significantly, it's like almost 20 times as many plants in cities as outside of cities are C4. Okay. Right? Just so that's a pre-adaptation that plants have. So uh, like a, a crab gra- uh, crabgrass, which is a common one. Also purslane, which is a common one. These are plants that if you live in not a city, but outside of a city, those are plants that start to compete really well in the later part of the summer when conditions get hotter and drier. And the C3, which is less efficient for water retention, that starts being less effective and C4 plants start being more What's the advantage effective. of C3? It's it's way more efficient. So you can, yeah, you can run it constantly. So it loses more water, but uh, you can run it in more parts of the plants. Uh, You can have, yeah, your stomata open all the time. So you're able to take in more carbon dioxide. And so are those, are the C3 plants doing better for us for global warming? So they're taking in more carbon dioxide. C4 plants are just, they're not really helping us. I don't think you can simplify it that much because- There are C4 plants that are able to grow in environments that C3 plants couldn't, or if they were able to grow in those areas, they wouldn't grow as efficiently. So having both of these plants, these pathways, and also cam plants, like pineapple is a cam plant, and uh, a lot of cacti are cam plants, and those are plants that run the second half of the photosynthetic pathway at night. If you... If you didn't have those plants, then you would have fewer plants overall in the environment. Okay, and just my final plant question, just to clarify, these sort of like an urban tree that's on a sidewalk and has this little patch of dirt around it. Yeah. When it rains, does it get sort of flooded out? Is there like a kind of puddling effect because the water has nowhere to go except for into that little dirt island? So it gets a tremendous amount of water for a brief time and then it's dry the rest of the time or does it just not get that much even when it rains? Yeah, it doesn't get that much. I mean, they're, you know, sidewalks are not flat, smooth surfaces. Roads are not flat, smooth surfaces. So there are cracks uh, between the sidewalk. You can find plants growing there, but there's also water that percolates down. You know, there is a lot of runoff, but there are also plants that, you know, there are cracks and pipes. And so plants can work like willows are terrible plants to plant next to your house because their roots can go into the tiniest little cracks of uh, your drainage pipes and get in there and then suck out water, um, but they can clog up pipes. So Uh, yeah, plants can, their roots can find any little crack or fissure and make their way into there to suck up water and nutrients from the soil. But there's just less water available in a city. There's far less, yeah, water that's available to those plants. So growth rates tend to be lower because they have less access to water. They also do have higher access to, yeah, sunlight typically in cities. Um, sunlight, that's another pre-adaptation here. So uh, did you ever play baseball when you were a kid or football? I did. I played quite a bit of baseball. Did you get really into it? And did you put little uh, I didn't <laughs> under your eyes? I didn't. I would sometimes, um, you know, I would sometimes cover my entire body with blackberry juice. But that was because <laughs> was I like blackberries. What's more to, <laughs> and you know, I enjoyed having insects land on me. It felt like it scared the pitcher when I was batting. So okay, I did I say baseball, not performance art, right? <laughs> well, it's a, there's a fuzzy border. Yeah, my, <laughs> is there? My past, <laughs> not for everyone, but in my case, yes. Yeah, yeah. I did, did you not, have any I teammates? That... The... I did. I did have some teammates that would do the the black patches under their eyes. And why? I don't think they knew. I think they saw other, you know, pro players doing it. We we thought sunglasses maybe worked better than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm. I don't know. What is the theory for 
I mean, it's it like attracts all the sunlight, right? The sunlight that was going to go into your eyes, it just gets diverted. It can't resist those patches. Yeah. Then <laughs> you're fine. I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Yeah. It prevents glare from uh, like glare. sunlight hitting your cheeks and then bouncing up into your eyes. So it'd be a slight advantage to have darker, naturally darker skin in a baseball setting. Not darker skin, but darker patches under your eyes. That's and, exactly. That's where you get the glare from. That's where yeah. Your cheekbones. Yeah. And so then if you look at urban species, this is helpful where if you have a bird that's going from dark to light to dark to light, you know, as it's flying through shadows of buildings or there are a lot of reflective surfaces. And so they're getting a lot of direct sunlight onto their eyes. That's extremely bright. It would be helpful to have sunglasses or the uh, feathery furry equivalent of those sunglasses. So a, a lot of the, the common species of birds that we have in these urban environments are birds that have these little black eye patches or the baseball paint under their eyes. So yeah, oh. black cap chickadees, house sparrows, cardinals, and then some of the species that are just entirely black, it sort of goes along with the territory. So grackles and um, male red winged blackbirds, at least, and crows. Pretty sweet. And raccoons also. Uh, raccoons, you know, are the bandit not, mask yeah not not necessarily out during the day but can be out during the day and so that could potentially be an advantage and so we were talking about pre-adaptations and so this is a pre-adaptation so it has to be functional in its native habitat environment and so then if you look at all of these other species house sparrows and chickadees etc those are species that are constantly flitting in and out of a wooded area they're spending a lot of time on a forest edge where it's very bright and if you go from a forested area into an open area your eyes might take a, or they definitely take a little bit of time to adjust and having that added protection of that little glare protector the little patch of black would be Help, an helps you out could make all the difference totally now are there many owls in urban environments i mean you think there's all this food there's these pigeons there's these rats but i'm guessing there's more light the more light at night makes it harder for them to hunt successfully because i have not seen many owls in the cities yeah there are two uh, predators in general aren't as common in urban environments that's not uh, we talked last week or last episode specifically about this and that being not totally true <laughs> but with owls one of the problems that you just mentioned or you mentioned earlier was about being smaller so you can fit into these tiny little cracks and so with a pre-adaptation being either on the smaller end of things so that you can get into those nest cavities like a house sparrow can nest in these tiny little cracks in your eve of your house like any little space if there's you know I, I see house sparrows nesting regularly in power or like light poles um stop lights where right. there's like a little gap and they can just squeeze in so being small helps and then being big helps on the other side of things where this is related to you know moving from one or discovering an urban space so that you can make it there is being larger helps because you have larger or a farther dispersal distance and so you're able to make it from one habitat that you're in to another habitat. And so owls are on the larger side of things. So they don't necessarily have cavities that they can nest in in urban environments. And they're, they typically nest in trees, like building these big platform nests. And there aren't always suitable habitats for nesting. So it's not great for nesting. But it seems like they might come into the cities. To yeah, they're the also nocturnal hunters. And so they're like prime time for 
hunting or foraging for food is either reduced or eliminated because they're lights that are, you know, active. And presumably they just, the animals night. can see them better so they can yeah. catch them as well. Speaking of lights, I mean, can you imagine nesting next to a traffic light? That's got to be slightly unpleasant. Just having this big green, yellow, red. When do you rest? When do you sleep? Well, they nest That's inside. Crazy. There's uh, so uh, not always, but sometimes there's like a little, you know, there's the bar that the lights hang from. And sometimes right. the cap is off on the end of those. And so they'll nest in that little cap. So they don't the... get the light, the light yeah. going on and off as much. Yeah. Yeah. There. I mean, lights are a big problem. I, I don't think we really talked about it much last time. But uh, animal daily, the daily patterns of animals changes pretty significantly where animals that are nocturnal will just like forage all the time or animals that are typically diurnal will forage well into the night because they have access to lights. So, yeah, being flexible. Is yeah, it seems like being adaptable, having some sort of big brain or like not totally programmed behavior would be a big advantage for urban animals. Yeah. I imagine. Yeah. Brain size is larger in urban animals versus this is not within a species but across species lines so this is a pre-adaptation uh so having larger brains makes it more likely that you'll do well in urban environments you have to have the plasticity or the ability to adapt your behavior to suit a new environment and thrive in it so again another reason the super intelligent rat should be our, our friends not our enemies yeah. Um, I should also note that brain size isn't always bigger in cities. There are some species like mice and other rodents, and then also some primates that their their brains get smaller in cities. Really? <laughs> where, where, I mean, if you... It's just too easy for them? They don't have it's to... It's just too easy. Solve. Sorry, not that they get smaller, but that primates with smaller, smaller brains... Smaller brains do better do, there. Yeah, do better there. So it's not a universal truth. Maybe the bigger brains was like, you know, this isn't that great a lifestyle for me. These potato chips are really affecting my health. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a smaller what which which of them <laughs> So if we see a monkey in a in a city, we're like, that's one of the dumber monkeys, basically. Is that a fair fair Wait. way to, that's probably not a way to go about thinking about animals, but tended to be the smaller brain primates. Yeah. That, that thrive in the cities. Yeah. You just like making a note there. Yeah, Primates note. in cities dumb. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to get my insults if they steal something of mine. Yeah. Well, speaking of primates, so one of the other pre-adaptations that animals can have is or need to have is high fecundity. And fecundity is just your capacity for reproduction because mortality rates tend to be higher in cities. And so if you have a higher fecundity, then you're able to replace any lost members of your population much quicker. Right. So one of the, the cool things is that tamarins, which we mentioned last episode, these are the ones that uh, have higher cholesterol in cities because they're foraging on uh, just like a straight diet of mangoes <laughs> and guava and papaya. Oh, right. And uh, these animals, so the, uh, the family is Calotrichidae, and Calos means beautiful. And then tri trichos, like um, trichomes are the hairs on plants. Trichos means hair. So these are the beautiful haired, the beautiful haired primates. And they're Glamorous beautiful. Primates. There's a bunch of different. There's like a golden tamarind that has this long russet hair and mm. yeah, a bunch of others. Uh, but those are species that give birth. So the most of the urban dwelling primates are uh, they're twinners, right? So they give birth to twins rather than to individual. Single. Yeah, to singletons. Twinners. Huh. And that's a big advantage because, you know, if you're just producing one offspring once a year, then you can't reproduce fast enough to keep up with the mortality rate from car collisions and other causes of death in cities. So if you're able Twinners to twin, 
Yeah. Then your fecundity is higher. Are there some that are able to triplet or quad? Uh, I, that's, uh, I don't know. Probably, probably get a less sure. healthy offspring if you're doing yeah. that all the time. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things about cities that's a big benefit is that food is relatively constant because all most of the, not most, but for si- truly synerbic species, the, the dependence is mostly not on the plants that are growing there, but on the humans that are living there and their waste. So like raccoons or rats or house mice and there's a nearly constant supply of food. And so if you're um, an animal like, say, a fox, you have a breeding season that's really narrow just in the winter, early winter. So if you're a fox, your fecundity isn't really flexible. But if you're a house mouse, you have no set period of estrus. You have continuous estrus throughout the year. So if in the winter, there's a constant supply of food that's the same as in the summer, you can just breed throughout the entire year. And yeah, house mice can have, I think, like five to 10 litters a year. And each of those litters can have, you know, half a dozen babies or so. So they can repopulate uh, an area after if their population gets decimated or if they colonize a new spot extremely quickly. And that's like a pre-adaptation for dealing with uh, city environments. And are there examples of creatures like foxes sort of adjusting their estrus where they can have more litters or is that just biologically programmed for for some well, mammals where they can't really change it uh, yeah i mean i think it's it's part of the plasticity right and so if you know for for like the tamarins they can give birth to singletons or twins in urban environments they tend to give birth to twins versus to singletons so it's not necessarily a genetic this is one of the raging questions in urban ecology is are the differences that we're seeing the result of genetic adaptations through time or is it just part of the plasticity of a species the ability of a species to have minor tweaks to its phenotype the expression of its genes right without actually having an underlying genetic change right yeah so you could you could have the effect of that appears to be an adaptation so if you look at all the urban tamarins and they're all giving birth to twins then you could say oh this looks like maybe this is a mutation but then if you take some of the population of non-urban tamarins and move them into urban environments you'll get the same effect right so it's a response to a different environment that's allowing they have you know more access to food they have fewer predators and um, so then they start twinning yeah so Given all these pre-adaptations and the interspecific variation and everything, you have all these species that are now living in a city together. And there are some common patterns. And some of the pre-adaptations that I talked about are are kind of patterns, or they might just be one-off. Like, it's not universal that species living in cities have twins or have higher fecundity rates. But that's a pre-adaptation that makes it more likely that those species will be able to compete well. But there are a few common characteristics of species, and these collectively are called the urban wildlife syndrome. So these are these essentially universal characteristics of species that live in cities. Are you on the edge of your seat? I am, but that's because I don't have good balance. I, almost yeah. <laughs> I was only related. asking that because you're leaning into the camera a little bit too close. <laughs> I'm excited. I mean, I, th- I thought it was like a big reveal. Uh, 
the, the short list of urban wildlife syndrome, but you've been going over it the whole time. So that's why I was on the edge of my seat. Has it already been revealed or is, there, is it going to be revealed? Well, I mean, I think it'll it'll sound really familiar because we've touched on these at least in part. So sort of the the big ones are the behaviors and population specific characteristics. So for behaviors, it's reduced wariness. And so this means if a human runs or yeah, comes running down a path, what's the panic. likelihood that a species right. is going to panic and get out of there? So part of this urban wildlife syndrome, these synurbic species that find their highest population densities in urban environments, they tend to be less wary than their forested counterparts. And that that's like within uh, within a species. So if you look at gray squirrels living in a city versus gray squirrels living in a uh, forested area, those in the city are going to be less vigilant. So the advantage there is that means that you can spend more of your time feeding because you're not worried about predators. Right. The disadvantage comes with one of the other parts of the urban wildlife syndrome is that populations have higher density. So if you have a higher density, that means that you're going to be encountering members of your own species more frequently and there's going to be higher competition. So maybe all that energy that you previously would have spent in a forest being wary and looking out for predators, you're, you're going to fighting. Yeah, fighting you're going to spend yeah. Like swaggering around so similar to west side story that's why you need the leather clothes with the studs yeah protection leather armor <laughs> definitely stylish leather armor um yeah and then i guess that's the third one that i just said is so the two behaviors are reduced wariness and then increased interspecific aggression well, obviously you don't want to be there's a le level of wariness you need right you don't want to be like a dodo bird and just wander up to every human and get clubbed on the head yeah, you don't you don't need to, but uh, and I've said this before uh, that if you're one squirrel in a park, your chances of a predator going after you are 100%. If you're one of two squirrels, then it's 50%, and you can split the wariness that you have to have. I see. So the more you have, the, the two less of you. individual wariness you need. Yeah, and then if there are three, then you have a 33% chance of getting hunted, <laughs> and so on. Right, and so. There's this, uh, you know, this is one of the big advantages for uh, so birds that stick around during the winter it, it, here in the Northeast tend to be birds that are spending more time in flocks uh, or at least like with cardinals are spending time in pairs. And so they're more vigilant because there are more of them. But there are also 85 percent of the birds that live in our state in the summer have migrated away. So the predators that have stuck around are now more likely to go after Target the chickadees. Them. So right. being in a, a flock can be really advantageous, but it it means that every individual in the flock, say there are a dozen or two dozen chickadees, all of a sudden you have a dozen or two dozen pairs of eyes that are keeping a uh, lookout for peregrine, or not peregrines, but Cooper's hawks Cooper or yeah, sharp-shinned hawks. So th those are, are really the, the three for the urban wildlife syndrome, the reduced awareness, increased interspecific aggression, and then increased population density. And again, this is a young field, so it's likely that there will be other things that will, as more data is collected, like we mentioned this earlier in this episode, that there's a high diet diversity. Right. And so that's probably a characteristic that is part of this urban wildlife syndrome, that urban species have a higher diversity uh, in their diet just in general. It's also likely that they have the ability to alter their activity patterns, which is helpful. Again, I mentioned this just a little bit ago about lights. And so if you're really rigid 
in when you can forage, then you'd be less likely to be able to take advantage of the increased light in cities and you wouldn't be able to compete as well with other species. So having flexibility in your diet, flexibility in your activity patterns uh, would be really helpful. Strikes me it's, I mean, again, one of the lessons I think of the podcast is don't don't try to imitate animals too much if you're a human. Yeah. (laughs) That might lead you down a dangerous path. Yeah. But I these I animals a, are go ahead. Oh, I had a friend that that asked me is like, "So wait, do you mean like uh don't mimic birds? Like if you're out like don't make the call of a chickadee?" And I was like, "No, no, no, no. It just means don't, you know, emulate the breeding structure of goby fish." <laughs> <laughs> don't do everything they do. But these animals in cities with this decreased wariness seem to be to thrive more, but you know, the sort of stereotype we have of urban humans is that they're very wary of each other. They're very you know, they, they are afraid that someone might be <clears throat> out to get them or will attack them. So they, they get very distanced from each other in cities. This is a stereotype I have, maybe. And one, maybe that's not a great idea all the time. Yeah, I mean, you can look at stress levels in urban species. And just because you're less wary of predators doesn't necessarily mean that you are. That's the expression of a behavior. Um, but that is not necessarily reflective of like your internal chemistry and so stress levels in these animals is significantly higher yeah because there are other stressors other than just responding negatively to a potential threat so again you're having to deal with like constant sirens and even vibrations in the ground uh increased light levels so if you need to sleep you know, my dog needs to sleep like 22 hours a day. Uh, and, you know, if I have a late night and I have the lights on, he'll just look at me real bleary eyed and be like, turn the light off. <laughs> That's what I'm saying about those house sparrows and the traffic lights. Yeah. I know you're saying it's okay for them, but I think it's a stressor. Yeah. So it's easy living on some level. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's happy it's stress. living. Yeah. Okay. Well, that might be another lesson we could take from it. <laughs> yeah. Um, awesome. So uh, I think that's that's pretty good. I'd love to talk about this for like another 10 hours straight, but uh, I think we'll leave it there. And what we'll do in the next few episodes is, uh, yeah, we had people vote on what their favorite urban animals are. And so we are going to profile those. So for the next... I am excited about this. I'm excited about here. this. I'm definitely excited too. So do we, do we get to say what's next? Do we can we say what's next coming next? Yeah. Like so our next teaser? episode is going to be on uh, American crows, and then uh, I can't remember what's after that. I think peregrine falcons. Is there a Norwegian crow? Nor- Norway crows. Norway we're going to do uh, yeah. We're going to do Norway falcons, <laughs> and then Norway crows, and then Norway rats, Norway squirrel squirrels. Yeah. <laughs> Norway cockroaches. Yeah. The crow. I love the crow. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm super excited to talk about crows. So, yeah, we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, Professor, as always. All right. For the Bye, enlightenment. Glenn. See you later. <laughs> Bye, Tate. One of the major advantages of city life for us urban naturalists is that the wildlife have nowhere to run or hide. In each of the following episodes for Season 3, we'll be tracking down these wild species and profiling some of the more charismatic, crafty, courageous, and even cute wildlife that share our cities with us. Until then, we'd greatly appreciate you dropping a five-star review for us. It helps us get the word out there on iTunes and other podcast apps. After leaving a review, head on over to crowspath.org podcast to get in touch with us through the Woodland Message Board. Here you can ask us questions, suggest future topics, and even post fake ads that we'll read on the air. 
You'll also find archived episodes, online natural history programs, and lots of other natural history content. Well, all right, naturalists, that's it for now. We'll see you next time on The Single Acorn.